every day I would wake up hopeless, desperate, and fearful. Every single day. It's an incredibly helpless feeling. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. Today on the show, we have John Panagas. John is an executive coach and an author. John, hey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you, John. I know you have an extensive background in the business world, including uh, the Panagas Group of Companies, which you brought, it sounds like, from a $200,000 business to a $100 million business in 20 years of work. Um, yeah, we did. And that is incredible. Uh, you've got years of executive coaching and... You know, so one of the things I try to do on the show is really have a diverse group of men. And I think if people scroll through the interviews, they would see that there's an incredibly diverse group of men. And I think you might be one of the first people who have lived in a leadership role while struggling with depression at times. So I'm really excited to be able to share that. That's something that I have dealt with as a principal of a school dealing with depression and being a leader in a building. And so I'm I'm excited to get into that. Yeah, you know what? We're not we're not much different because I think we've probably both had days where we feel like we're hurting cats all day long. Oh my goodness, right? yeah. Yeah. And you know, we live a dual life, don't we? You yes. know, we live the life that we have internally and then we live that external life, the the life that people um believe is who we really are. And when you're Dealing with it from a leadership standpoint, it becomes even more, um, I think the pressure is even more intense because, you know, you, you have to maintain this persona that you wish you could be, right? But you're not because internally you're constantly in turmoil. And and that's, that's what makes it difficult. And, and the one thing that that really makes me crazy is the stigma attached to depression, that stigma of weakness. And I, you know, I, I think you'll, you'll, you'll understand and agree that when you're in, in a leadership role dealing with depression and my depression is, is severe, you know, is severe depression. The last thing we are is weak because we have to, you know, we, we have to make sure that we function because we we are responsible for so many people. Right. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I would absolutely agree. And so how would you describe being this leader? You know, in my mind, I kept thinking like I'm hiring and I'm firing people. And if anybody knows I'm dealing with depression, are they going to use this against me? Can they use this against me? Um, where, did you have those types of fears as a leader of an organization? Well, every day. 
and and I and and I believe that for for my standpoint, it was the way I grew up, because um, my father, God bless him, is a pretty tough dude, and because I didn't come out with my depression to my family until I was probably in my late fifties. Wow. So I dealt I dealt with this condition, and you know, and and it's interesting the way people describe it. I, I sincerely believe it's a disease. I really do. But you hear condition, you hear ailment, you know, there's all sorts of different things. But I, I've had, I had depressive feelings and I call them feelings because I wasn't diagnosed at that point, but I believe I had depressive feelings for a good 23, 24 years and then diagnosed severe depression for 30, 35 years. So I've had this all my life. And and the the interesting part about it is, when you're, you know, when you're in that that leadership role, you know, it's interesting that you say, you know, were you concerned about, you know, people knowing who you were and 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 what was really going on in, inside of you, and I would say after a while you even you forget about it, you end up in this you know this sort of dual existence, and it happens that it becomes who you are and but you can't you can't maintain that you know i think it's we're we're not we haven't developed as human beings to be able to live that type of life for a long time and look al i was fortunate because you know i probably had maybe two or three breakdowns in my life where i just checked out because i couldn't exist anymore it was just you know so difficult However, you you just don't want anybody to know about it, and and it's an odd feeling, and and, it, and, and it's difficult to explain because, yeah, the, the part of it is, you know, there's a weakness, which as far as I'm concerned is absolute nonsense. However, the other part of it is, they've just gotten used to me. This is the way I am, and all of a sudden I'm going to say, well, listen, guess what? This is what I'm struggling with. So. Yeah, it was, it was. It's been a very, very strange, strange experience for me. It really has. So I'm really curious when you say 22 or 23 years of dealing with depressive feelings, and again, you mentioned mm-hmm. that you call them depressive feelings because you weren't diagnosed. Were Correct. those severe enough feelings that had you gone to a doctor, they would have diagnosed you with depression? You know, that's a really good question, and the uh, the quick answer is absolutely okay. no question. Because when I look back at the type of anxiety and stress that I dealt with on a regular basis um, as a small child all the way, you know, into teenagehood and into, you know, being a young adult and whatnot, I don't, the, the, the feelings that I had were no different, undiagnosed and then diagnosed. I mean, even after I started taking medication, uh, you know, it was it was okay for a little while and then it just almost wore off. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling. You know, it just doesn't, it's not doing it. It's not keeping me in uh, in equi- equilibrium, so to speak. Right. You're talking specifically the medication. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there is, you know, I think the old school term is Prozac poop out because people who are on Prozac for a long time, yeah, the body, I don't know exactly physiologically what happens, but your body essentially gets used to it and it no longer works. And they call it the poop out factor. And that's when a lot of times people have to either up the dose or, you know, clearly work closely with the doctor, maybe try a different medication. Um, But so at what age do you think looking back 
would you say your depressive feeling started? And what were some of those symptoms that would clue you into that? I was age three. And, I, and the reason I can tell you that I was age three is that a few years ago, when I decided I'd had enough of this life, or the, the, the prior life, that is, um, I started to see a, a therapist, a psychiatrist, and you know, very non-traditional and very open-minded, uh, uses all sorts of different therapies, and, and medication is at the bottom of his list, by the way. As far as he's concerned, it's necessary to get a, a patient to a level where, where he can work with them. But as far as he's concerned, um, holistic therapy is the way to go. Now, holistic therapy takes a lot longer than medication. Any holistic um, remedies or medicines are like that. So uh, during one of our sessions, he asked me, you know, he said to me, you know, could, we, we started to do a, an intake on my life. And he found it odd that I started talking about things that I could remember from age 13 on. And he said, why? And I said, because I can't remember anything from 13 back. The only reason I know things happen is because people told me. And so he said, why do you think that is? And I said, I don't know. And he said, aren't you curious? And the truth is, yes, I had been curious for a long time. I, I was also afraid of, there might have been physical abuse. And that's why I didn't want to uh, pursue it. Did you and have so reason very, to believe that there could have been physical Well, you abuse? know, yes and no. Yes, because my father is a very violent, emotional, he's a very violent verbal person, okay? Don't ever, don't ever remember him ever laying a hand on us, ever. However, because I didn't know what, what went on from 13 back, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure what happened. So... Um, my therapist, you know, took me by the hand gently and he said, why don't we try some hypnosis? Why don't we try some hypnosis? And, um, you know, I've been, a, I've been a skeptic about anything alternative most of my life. And I said to him, look, you know what? Uh, not a big fan. I've seen stage hypnosis. I think that it's, you know, it's kind of embarrassing what the, the therapist, the, the hypnotist puts people through and this and that. And he just chuckled and he said, look, that's not real hypnosis. Real hypnosis is with somebody who is certified uh, as a hypnotherapist, and they will they will take you gently through the process. And somehow he convinced me. I don't know. I don't know why. And, and you know, yeah, I do know why. I mean, he's probably the first therapist that has really helped me make a difference in my life. And so I agreed, and I went into um, I went to uh, to meet a, a hypnotherapist who took me into what's called uh, age regression hypnosis. And that is to take you back to a certain um, time in your life. And so went through the process, you know, to make a long story short, because it would take an entire session to talk about how hypnosis works. To make a long story short, he got me to the age of three. And at the age of three uh, was I, I, the first time I could remember emotional trauma. And that is my father coming home, yelling and screaming at my mother. And I stood up for my mother and asked my father to stop it. And what happened was my depression manifests physically by a, a pain in my gut. And so when, while I was under, uh, while I was in the, the hypnotic trance, I could feel the pain in my gut. And that was the first time that I felt the depressive feelings. And then over my life, these incidences would, you would carry on. I mean, God bless my father. I, you know, I love my dad. Um, I don't necessarily like him, 
Um, but I certainly love my father. And he had a very difficult time when he came. You know, he came from Italy. He's a, we, we're an Italian family. And, you know, typical immigrant story, you know, next to nothing in his pocket and dealt with, with rampaging racism for a very large part of his life. And his release valve was when he came home. And it was yelling and screaming at my mom, yelling and screaming at my brother and I. And so for me, it was uh, – that's when it started. And, you know, a lot of people kind of look at me funny saying, you know, really, seriously? Could, you know, is, is that possible that that would happen? And you know what? A couple of months later, I asked my mom. And she looked at me very thoughtfully and just gave – my mom has – my mom has advanced Alzheimer's, but she looked at me very thoughtfully and just gave me a slight nod and a little smile. And so I knew that's what had happened. You know, I, I often wondered why I was so close to my mother because my mother and I, uh, I was her protector from my dad, okay? And like I said, he never laid a hand on us, but uh, there, were, there were times where I wish he had because I think, you know, a physical bruise, you know, heals pretty quickly. Uh, where an emotional bruise doesn't. An emotional bruise, if not attended to, is going to stay with you the rest of your life. Right. So that's when I started feeling it back then. Wow. Age three. So yeah. even as a skeptic, you found that the hypnotism worked for you? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. And I think that, again, as it, as it relates to depression and mental illness in general, there's also a stigma about um, hypnosis. Uh, several, as a matter of fact, you know, like you're put to sleep. No, you're not. You're are completely awake and aware when you're in a hypnotic trance. Um, the hypno the hypnotherapist or hypnotist can make you think do things you don't want to do. Nonsense again. Um, you can end a hypnotherapy session at any time because you're you are conscious the entire time. Right. And so I have found, and, and as a result of this, Al, I am a, a registered hypnotherapist. Oh, awesome. I found it so incredible because what happened is once I got to that stage at age three, memories started flooding back from 13 back. It was incredible. I mean, it was just, it was, um, and, and, and they started, and they came back even months later. You know, things that I never realized. Right. And I actually had to, had to ask, you know, my cousins and my family about certain things that I remembered. My goodness, did this happen? Oh, yeah. You don't remember that? I said, well, yeah, I do now. Um, but prior to that, I hadn't. So I would recommend it. I would recommend um, uh, hypnosis, hypnotherapy uh, for for just about anything. I mean, look, the number one and number two are, you know, weight weight loss and 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 cigarette smoking, right? Stopping smoking. But I, I dealt with a wonderful hypnotherapist in Toronto, Debbie Papadakis. And Debbie's been doing this for 40 some odd years. She's, in, she's incredible because she can, I've, I've, we watched her put people in a trance in less than 10 seconds. It's, it's insane. It wow. really is. Yeah, and it's, and it's a therapy that I wish more people would pay attention to. Right. Because our subconscious drives us. And uh, some you know, even more forward-thinking hypnotherapists are now saying that that they can actually access the unconscious as well. Not so sure about that yet, um, but the subconscious drives who we are, and um, hypnosis is really gentle suggestion, is what it is. And if you do it enough and consistently, then it can help you change behavior. I firmly believe it. Right. So, because of the hypnosis. 
you now do have many memories from the ages of three to thirteen, or, or is a lot okay? If not, if not all of them, right? And they're vivid, and they're vivid. They okay. really are. They're and vivid. what would it's, are it's you cool. are you able to share other symptoms when you look back as to what you would describe as depressive symptoms or the first yeah, ones that I you would remember? Think that I would think that. Um, uh, you know, after, after dinner, I would typically, I would typically retreat to the, to my bedroom, you know, do some homework and then, you know, devour the newspaper front to back. So I spent a lot of time, um, by myself. I spent a lot of time, um, ruminating, I guess. Cause I think, I think that in the research that I've done about depression, the, one of the, one of the symptoms that is the most dangerous and the most hurtful is rumination you know is that constant rolling around in your mind of those negative feelings those negative those negative experiences that you've had in your life because i think at the end of the day you know there's there's nothing you can do about the past let's face it it's done it's over those of us that struggle with depression spend a lot of time there and it doesn't make it any better it makes it a lot worse and so I spent a lot. I spent a lot of time with that I think that because I wasn't I wasn't able to um, have therapy because who knew you know even when you're a teenager you know what's the deal well you know what I'm probably sad and you know when, when it starts at three years old it becomes your life you really don't know any better this is the way it is right so for me it was isolation is a big one it really really it's it's one of and I think it's. I think it's one of the the you know next to rumination. I think it's one of the 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 toughest things for for a, direct, a depressed person to deal with because isolation breeds depression and depression breeds isolation. It's like a never-ending circle, right? And it's difficult. I, I believe it's difficult for us to want to get out and do things because we're afraid of being found out. Yeah, afraid of being found out, and I've also found when I was in a deep depression that I didn't think anybody wanted to be around me. And, and oh, I was, that too? and I was actually really struggling socially and I'm not a person who struggles socially typically, but I couldn't really communicate with people very well. So yeah, isolation is a big one. And then when you are isolating, it's very easy to become one who starts to ruminate uh, and to go down a deep, dark spiral and beat yourself up for all the isolation and just to go down a deep, dark hole of ruminating, I agree, is is a pretty pretty bad place to be. Well, you start to believe your own nonsense because right. you're the only person you're talking to, right? Oh yeah. And that and 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 that's where I, I, I you know the more the more I've researched and the more people I speak to and listen to. Um, that is the problem. That is the issue. That is the, the, the overriding issue is that. And, you know, when you take a look at leadership, at, at business leadership, one of the top, it, easily the top three complaints that a leader will have is the isolation that they experience as a leader. Because they're supposed to be perfect. They're supposed to be the ones with all the answers. They're supposed to be the ones that take the shots for the business. So therefore, they are, um, you know, they're supposed to be superheroes. When the truth is, we're just human beings, is what we are. And so you, when you start, when you 
live when you sorry when you exist in those type of in that type of expectation that life of expectation it just makes it more difficult is what it does absolutely and i would imagine a lot of leaders are naturally tough on themselves and have a strong drive and uh, i think that People who are perfectionists are more susceptible to depression because they create these unrealistic uh, expectations of themselves and then they fall short and then they start beating themselves up and again, possibly ruminating it and starting to believe the lies of the depression. Um, So what were your high school days like and and post high school? Um, You know what? For for somebody that... um that dealt with what I dealt with. I was my class valedictorian. Wow. And, and yeah. And you know what? And, and it's, it's, it's actually a, a relatively humorous story because the last person I believed when I was in my graduating class was that I would be the class valedictorian. So in, in my high school, it was voted on by the teachers and the students in the graduating class. And so I didn't pay any attention to it. You know, I voted for somebody that I thought would be really good, and off we go. And when they made, they made the announcement, I wasn't even paying attention to the announcement. Everybody's looking at me, and they're saying, John, guess what? You're the class valedictorian. I said, what? <laughs> there must be some mistake. And to make it even more interesting, you know, as soon as I'm announced, the principal calls me down to his office. And I remember Mr. Mackey. He's one of my favorite guys. God bless him. Who knows where he is today, but... I sit down in his office, and I got to know him, right? Like I wasn't, I wasn't an A student, but I was, I was a good person in high school, and right. people recognized that. So, and I got to know Mr. Mackey, really good guy. So he sat me down. He said, "John, so you've been voted as class valedictorian," and I said, "Yes, sir." And he said, "So what do you think about that?" And I said, "Well, sir, I'll bet I'm probably just as surprised as you are." You know, and he starts <laughs> laughing, right? And he said, "And he said, well, there's something else." And I said, "Okay, what's that?" He said, well, there's two things. He said, do you think you could do a, a, you know, an address, a valedictory address? And I said, well, never spoken in front of people, sir, but you know what? Don't, don't worry about it. I'll get it done. And he said, okay. He said, well, here's the other issue. He says, you have the lowest grade point average of any valedictorian in the history of this school. <laughs> I said, oh, seriously? And he said, yeah, because it's, you know, it's usually the people with the highest grade point average. I said, well, so – are you telling me I can't do it? He says, no, no, I just, you know, I wanted to see how you felt about it. And I, you know, I think it's going to be okay. And so Al, I have to tell you, it was one of the most terrifying times in my life, you know, and I, and and I've run a hundred million dollar business, but my valedictory address, thank goodness for my, my, my friend, my best friend in high school, my best friend in high school was the hottest girl in school. And she had a boyfriend outside of school and I had a girlfriend out of school, outside of school. So we were, we were really good friends. And if it wasn't for her, helping me, first of all, to pen it, to write it, and then, you know, sort of give my shoulders a good rub before I went up, up there and did it. I don't know that I would have got through it, to be <laughs> honest. Um, high, school, high school was really um, where I really started to become the imposter, I think. Because I would, you know, I would wake up in the morning feeling just terrible and starting, you know, and then, you know, you'd have to, you know, get yourself out of bed and, and then, you know, make your way to school and, you know, feeling really bad. But as soon as the door opened up, you stood a little bit, you know, more upright and you put a big smile on your face. And that's been the story of my life. I mean, as a leader, I had to do the same thing. Right. Because, you know, it, it's, it's really weird because when you grow up with it, it becomes who you are and you don't know any better. 
The only thing that I used to remember is just looking at some, watching some of my schoolmates and, you know, experiencing their happiness and joy and wanting to have that. And right. I couldn't, right? I couldn't. I faked it. You know, I, 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 I faked it. When I got my, my, um, my, uh, my first job, my first job was at McDonald's restaurants. And, um, you know, I was a typical part-time guy working. And, and I, I guess they saw something good in me. And very quickly, I, I was promoted to, um, to uh, what's called a swing manager. And that's part-time manager. You know, you know, people that run shifts on weekends and some nights during the week. And, um, and I can remember how terrified I was pulling into the parking lot that I had to go in. And, you know, I had to sort of, you know, lead this merry band of, of people and it was the same thing. It's like it's almost uh, it became part of my persona that I would be absolutely petrified until I opened the door. And then all of a sudden I would change and I would be this different person because whenever I no matter where I worked, if somebody saw me not smiling, they'd wonder why is something wrong, John, you know, and and sometimes it was just I was thinking and other times, truthfully, I was feeling it right so it was tough it was tough to to um you know to get through when i started driving um i used to drive i used to drive circles around wherever i worked for 10 15 minutes before i pulled in and parked because i was so terrified wow it was it's, it's unbelievable i don't know it, it's true you know when i look back i think to myself my goodness look at what i put myself through to get you know to get things done it was, um, it was, yeah, and and that's why the stigma of weakness makes me crazy, right? Because that's the last thing we are. Yeah, exactly. Right? And it really you, is. You know, I heard you describe it as the imposter, um, and I've heard people describe it that way. And I often uh, use the term of like putting a mask on. Yeah, um, I I used to call it. I called it in my book. I call it putting on my suit of armor. Right, because that's what it was. I, I read an, an excellent book years ago by a gentleman by the name of Ole Carlson, and his book was Beneath uh, Beneath the Armor, and it was all about uh, it was is a it was about business people, and the armor that they wear every day when they go to work. Uh, you know the, the 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 situation with depression and leadership is not something that has just sort of reared its ugly head over the last you know, seven or eight years because awareness has increased. Um, the situation of, of depression and leadership is decades old, if not centuries old, to be quite honest. Right. I think it's always been there. And I think that what happens as leaders is that, um, that leaders with, with some form of mental illness, and, and, I, and I look at, pri it, it is primarily depression. Yes, there are heightened states of anxiety. There is, you know, incredible Stress, there is mania. Uh, there's a, you know, there's probably a fair amount of bipolar. I've seen it um, over and over and over. Uh, but depression's the big one. It really is. And um, I think that uh, in 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 my in the research that I did with uh, in my book, what I found very very interesting is that there there are several leaders in history that struggle with depression, massive depression. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, of all people. Uh, who was who was uh, uh, who was manic, and who wrote letters and and wrote. There's actually a poem in the book that he wrote that you you'd never you'd never know that this giant in, in history 
uh, was dealing with the demons that he was dealing with. Uh, Winston Churchill, uh, even even a bigger story, uh, Winston Churchill uh, coined the term uh, "the black dog," and that's what it, that's how he that's how he described his, his depression. There's a wonderful um, video that was produced by the World Health Organization called "The Black Dog," and it is easily one of the best representations of how depression feels and i would i would um encourage uh your listeners to uh, to watch that video because and and i use it in I, I i've actually transcribed some of it into the book and i also use it in my workshop and i and i tell you i've probably seen it, i've probably watched it a hundred times now it really epitomizes how it feels the good news is it also has a happy ending. I'll leave it at that because I think right. it's really important for people to watch because it is very, very well done. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, high school days, you were the valedictorian. The, yeah. Did so? Did were there any kind of negative uh, consequences from your depression at all? I mean, it sounds like you really in high school. Yeah, um, high school. Yeah, I, I think most of the negatives were on me personally. They were just, you know. You know where I was living. You know, you know, you you stress over you stress over a really, you know, over a test, and you end up getting an eighty or ninety percent. As it relates to outwardly with my friends, now I was the guy everybody could talk to. Yeah, right. I really was. And and so really. you weren't. You know, sometimes I hear about some men who slept through a lot of their classes because they couldn't get out of bed or oh, I, couldn't listen, focus I, I, at all I, in I, school. Yeah, I I I had all those issues, but somehow, and somehow I push through yeah and maybe it's genetics i don't know i don't know but somehow i push through and i think that that's uh you know the two words that i can describe in my life is having to say yeah that's mm -hmm. what i you have to do it i mean you you have no choice um uh, so yeah other than that you know what high school was i loved i loved high school i loved high school i didn't like public school that much but high school was my favorite time especially the last two years of high school where nice. um we were a small small high school so i think the graduating class was maybe 70 80 people it probably even less as a matter of fact and so we were a very very tight tight group of people um but i think that high school is when i really started to understand my insecurity okay prior to that i really didn't but in high school, it got a little more serious because, you know, once you get to, you know, in, in Canada's grade 13 and here it's your senior year, um, you know, you start thinking, OK, so what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And for somebody that's struggling with depression, that becomes a big problem. You know, what is it? You know, my old man wanted me to be a lawyer. I did not want to be a lawyer. Right. Um, I went to university for about a month and a half and then I had a. a difference of opinion with a professor on a paper that I wrote and um, I couldn't believe the mark I got and so you know we duked it out a little bit and then I quit the next day because he pissed me off yeah that's why I quit so there 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 is a result a result I think because I had convinced myself I'd written this amazing paper and this guy put me down Right. And that so I quit. that next day you quit not just that course but college. Completely. Everything. Yeah. And, and uh, I and I would, <laughs> and I uh I went directly to my restaurant manager where I was working part time at McDonald's and I said to him, Here I am. 
I'm ready. I'll do this full time now because that's, you know, that because, you know, the truth is I did it well. You know, I, I may have not been 100 percent there in terms of it, you know, mentally and emotionally, but I, it was it was it was it was fun for me. I really enjoyed it. And so I spent I spent the next month and a half. It's amazing what you do when you're you know, you're still a kid, right? In first year of college or university. And so for the month for the next month and a half, I'm scurrying to get the mail because I know that that letter's gonna come. Because my father was paying for my tuition, right? And geez, one day I missed it. My mom got the letter and boy, there was hell to pay that night. That's for sure. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I think that that's you know that's what happens. You 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 don't live in the real world. You really don't. Yes, the real world is there. I think you're aware of it when you're dealing with depression, but you will make these irrational decisions. You know, I had decided prior to going to university that I was going to be a history teacher. That's what I wanted to do. I said to my I said to my father, fine. You know what? If I may be a lawyer, great, no problem. Um, but I knew what I wanted to do because I love history, right? I love to read and, and you know, it's just – it's been part of my life and that's what I wanted to do. It's this professor and, – and the course was the rise and fall of the, first, of the Third Reich, right? But this professor who asked us for an opinion piece slammed my opinion and it was just – it was so quick after we were finished discussing. I said to myself, I don't need this. This is crazy. And off I went. Wow. So who knows, right? Who knows? You know, when if you look back in your life and you wonder to yourself, I sometimes wonder to myself, what if I had been able to get therapy when I was younger, the type of therapy I've had in the last two years? What would happen? And let's face it, I'm wishing my life away, right, when I say those types of things. And I'm actually falling into rumination is what I'm doing when I'm thinking about those sort of things. But, but it, there's, there's a lot of truth in that. I don't think that as a society, we place near enough importance on good mental health. You know, we veer, we veer to physical health because the, the truth is uh, physical health and physical ailments, diseases and whatnot have a very subjective way of being diagnosed. Uh, sorry, objective way of being diagnosed, right? Blood tests, MRIs, uh, x-rays, you name it. And there are norms in just about everything. You compare the norm, if you're abnormal, listen, you're gonna take this pill, you're gonna take this therapy. But when it comes to mental illness, it's very subjective. There's no blood test for depression, right? right? And, and that's what makes it really, really difficult yeah. is that mental illness is, you know, it's still the invisible disease. God, that makes me nuts when I hear that. It's still the invisible disease. It's, you know, it's what people are crazy about. Because I am so open with how I feel, I will sometimes join conversations in parties. I have to tell you, I, I joined one conversation where, where a group of guys, a group, group of guys, and they were talking about one of, one of their friends who had leukemia. And they were getting, you know, they were getting into the conversation about it and this and that. And so I don't know how it veered to, but I decided I was going to talk about mental illness. So I think we started with six guys. By the time, by the time I started, the, you know, about two minutes into my conversation, there was two of us left. Because the other four walked away. Right. I mean, wow. are you serious? Give yeah. me a break. I mean, it's, it's it's it makes me crazy, really, and that's why I'm on this journey, because you know, it's there's there are so many people 
<clears throat> excuse me, on this earth that are suffering that don't need to suffer. Yeah, absolutely. Because I believe, I believe that you you catch depression or any sort of mental illness early enough that you can change a person's life. Yeah. That person's life can change, and it can be better. So that's why you know that's why I'm on the journey that I'm on. Yeah. So you described having depressive feelings for 22 years and then diagnosed with severe depression for 36 years. Yep. What what finally brought you to a doctor and tell us about when you received that diagnosis? So the first time was at a point in my life where I had done some sort of some skimming about mental illness and depression, primarily depression. And I thought, hey, you know what, some of this stuff sounds like what I'm dealing with. So I went to see my, my family doctor and Dr. Poldis, wonderful lady. She's retired now. And I, you know, I told her how I felt. Now, Dr. Poldis was also a naturopath and this is a long time ago. So natural, naturopaths were, uh, there were very few of them to say the least. Uh, but she was pretty, she was very good. And so we, she took me through a whole conversation about mental illness, depression and whatnot. And, you know, and then and back then, it was really, you know, the conversation was about genetic predisposition and uh, a lack of serotonin, the neurotransmitter, right? And so she said to me, well, tell me about your mother. And I said, well, my mother is, you know, my mother's been dealing with depression since she was 40. And she tells me her mother was depressed and her two sisters were depressed. She goes, oh, okay. And then she would say, so, you know, how, you know, how do you feel? And, you know, what is it like when you wake up? And I said, well, I wake up fearful. She goes, okay, now how's the rest of the day go? And I said, well, you know, the fear stays with me. And then I'm sad. I'm sad a lot. And she said, okay, well, tell me what that means, sad a lot. And I said, well, I guess, she goes, can you put it in the context of time? And I said, yeah, I could be sad an entire day. And she said, any more than that? She, and I said, yeah, I, I guess there are weeks where I'm sad. And so, you know what, that plays into all the questions, right? The typical questions about depression. So God bless her. She said, okay, look, um, my suspicions are that you are suffering from depression. And so what I want to do is I want to um, prescribe for you uh, an antidepressant called Effexor. I'm, gonna, I'm going to prescribe the lowest dose available, and I'm going to get your referral to a psychiatrist. She said, because I am not a psychiatrist. I can just, I barely scratch the surface when it comes to mental illness. Now, it's important to remember that because most family physicians do not believe that. But she was probably the most honest one I've ever met. Because I think the, I, I believe that one of the, one of the travesties is that a family doctor can prescribe antidepressant medication. Uh, they don't have near the education to be able to do that, yet they're all licensed to do it. That's a conversation for another time because I could go on for about three hours about that one. <laughs> right. So anyway, so she sent me to the psychiatrist. And so I went to the psychiatrist and he did all sorts of cognitive testing with me. And we went through all sorts of, you know, different tests, different, uh, you know, little puzzles for me to do, you know, all the stuff. And, and let's face it, this is a long time ago, right? So it was rudimentary compared to today. And I shouldn't say that because actually there's probably still using a lot of the same tests they used 30 years ago, to be honest. And so he concurred with my family doctor and said, John, I believe that uh, you don't just have depression. You have severe depression. You have what we call clinical depression. I said, okay. I said, so what happens now? And he said, well, 
She's put you on a medication, which I would put you on. She's put you on a dose that I would put you on. So she's done the right job. I said, okay, so what happens now? And that's where it ended, Al. He said, well, you're going to put, go on the medication and we're going to monitor you. Your doctor will monitor you as to how you feel and so on. And, you know, what if, if there's an improvement, then we may leave you at it. If it's not, then we'll raise the dose. So I said, okay. Uh, not knowing what I know today, I thought to myself, okay, this sounds pretty easy. This is going to be okay. But it wasn't. You know, I think it was life took over maybe three or four months later. We got really busy at work. And I kid you not, for the next 25, 30 years, I just went back to how I felt before. And I just settled. While you were on I the medication taking, and still checking yeah, in with your the doctor? Medication. Yeah, still checking in with the doctor. I think we had about three dose, three dosage increases during that time. But I wasn't getting any better. And the reason I wasn't getting any better, you know, unfortunately, it took me, fortunately and unfortunately, it took me a few years later, is that I wasn't getting therapy. Because drugs alone aren't going to do it. What drugs alone do is they create an addiction, is what they do. Because I believe that SSRIs and antipsychotics and all that, all the other uh, medications that are available out there are just as addictive as crack and alcohol, to be quite honest. And so I just, you know, maybe it, maybe it took the edge off a little bit. But I certainly, I certainly did not overcome, or I certainly wasn't able to manage my depression. My depression. See, that's wrong. You should, I, you should never own it, as far as I'm concerned. It's the depression, as far as I'm concerned. And then two years ago, I woke up one morning and decided I'd had enough. I can't tell you why. I can't tell you what triggered it. I just woke up and said, enough of this sad and frustrating life. I'm going to do something about this. And that's when I started on my mission. Uh, first thing I did was I educated myself. I dove into whatever I could read and absorb to understand what was going on with me. I was too busy years ago. I mean, what a, what a cop-out. I was too busy years ago. I mean, it's complete nonsense, but it's the truth. I didn't do anything about it. Uh, my life had slowed down somewhat. I had had a near-death experience with a blood clot the year before. Um, so I, I, I suppose that I was in a different space as it related to my mortality. And uh, my first grandchild was born, which changed me a lot, by the way. I don't know if you have grandchildren, but grandchildren are God's gift to people, as far as I'm concerned. So I did a lot of, I did a lot of research, and, and the research scared me. It scared me as to what was going on in the world as it relates to mental illness, because I was oblivious to it. Like most people are. Can you speak to any specifics about what scared um, you? Yeah, what scared me was the the epidemic of it. What scared me was that uh, I did a bit of research on the top 100 medical charities in the U.S. Not a single one has got anything to do with mental illness. God, that's amazing. Isn't that awful? Two, yeah. uh, two are Alzheimer's, but Alzheimer's kind of crosses the line. Right. Okay. And it is, and it kind of isn't. It all depends on who you talk to. Yeah. But there's nothing mental illness, which completely flabbergasted me when I read this. And and I, you know, and I I kept digging in and kept digging in, and I thought to myself, nobody's talking about this. What the hell's going on here? And so I went to my doctor, and my family doctor, new one, because Doctor Poldis had retired, and um, 
I said to her, I said, I'm really, really feeling shitty. And uh, I don't think the medication I'm on is, is helping me. So she said, okay. So she gave me three tests. Three. She pulled open her filing cabinet, gave me three little tests to write out. Uh, Al, one had been photocopied so many times, the paper looked like it was on an angle. Okay. <laughs> it was, that's how bad it was. So I filled out the tests. And I can tell two of them, you had to add up the numbers. Didn't say to do it, but I did it anyway because I had time. <laughs> and so she took a look at the three tests. She goes, John, I believe you're severely depressed. And I said, well, isn't that something? I said, listen, I know I am. I need some help. I need you to tell me what you're going to do to help me. And her help was a new prescription of a new drug, which she happened to have samples of in her office. Now, I read about that too, okay? So she said, listen, let's start on this low dose. Come back in two weeks. Tell me how you feel. And so I said to her, well, what do I do with the ones I have? She goes, I'll just stop taking them. Okay. Now, just stopping taking them is not the right answer. And I knew that from the reading I had done. And yet this relatively highly educated person did not know that. So I went through the two weeks. Yeah, you know, it was a little bit better. Came back to her, told her how I felt and this and that. And she wanted to up the dose. And so I said, I need to see a psychiatrist is what I need to do. Or a psychologist. I need to get therapy. And so she said, well, all right. Now, she didn't recommend this, Al. I had to recommend it. I had to demand it. And so she said to me, well, boy, there's a real backlog in getting an appointment. It could be six to nine months before you get one. Now, this is in Canada where we have social medicine where that type of nonsense should not happen, right? And so I said, are you kidding me? Six to nine months. And she said, yeah, that's what it takes. So I said, all right, we'll do it. You know, make the, you know, set up the referral and so on. I said, in the short term, is there anybody else I can see? Can I see a therapist or something? Help me out here. So she connects me to a therapist, lovely woman. We, you know, we started working together. Uh, it was working and it wasn't working. And even, even my therapist knew after a while. She goes, John, you really need to see a psychiatrist. And I said, well, here's the story. I'm going to have to wait six to nine months. And she's, I said, do you know anybody in private practice that I can see? And she said, let me, let me check. And I have the utmost in respect for this woman simply because she could have said no and continued seeing me. Instead, uh, two weeks later, she gave me two names of people she thought that um, would help me. And she had called them and they said yes, that they had room. And so I quickly went online because I had learned during my, during my uh, research and investigation that you can actually Google doctors' names and you can get reviews. And so I pulled up reviews for both of them. And the one, uh, the first one was a very traditional uh, person. It seemed to me like, you know, patients look forward to seeing them every week or every month or whatever. And it just, it didn't feel right. But the, but the second one, Dr. Stein, was interesting because half his reviews were he's a lunatic and the other half of his reviews said he saved their lives. And I decided this is the guy I wanted to see. And so it was really my first experience with therapy at that point. And uh, he's been a revelation. He's really, really helped me because he told me right from the outset 
that medication is not the only way out. And he's embarrassed about his community. And, and I've gotten to know several psychiatrists and psychologists now as a result of what I've done. And most of these guys will say the same thing, that their community is just not treating its patients effectively. Right. They rely on medication and they rely on a parasitic relationship. I'll see you every week. I'll see you every couple of weeks. I saw Dr. Stein twice a week for about a month then once a week for a couple of months, and now I see him maybe once every three or four months. Now, that's the way it should be. Because you see, what he did, Al, is during that time, he armed me with therapies and techniques and different things that I can do that help me manage, mitigate, and overcome my depression. Now, that's the way a therapist should deal with his or her patients. My mother still sees her lunatic psychiatrist every week she's been seeing him for 10 years and she's not any better wow so i i've got a couple things i'm curious about you know living with depression for my goodness like i think you described about 58 years total with the depressive feelings yep. and since you were diagnosed so 58 years i think i really believe everybody's depression is different and I'm yes. wondering if you can describe yours. I mean, for 58 years, were you depressed every day or did it come in every waves or how would you no. describe it? No, every single day. Every, every day. single day. I would, every day I would wake up hopeless, desperate and fearful. Every single day. There were days where I rolled myself out of bed and the only reason I got up is because I fell on the floor. I kid you not. I used to wake up my ex-wife. <laughs> she would say, what happened? I said, oh, it's okay. I just fell out of bed. Don't worry. And I had to push through. I had a, you know, I had a wife. I had three kids. You know, My parents had a dysfunctional marriage that I was the referee of. And by the way, I don't want anybody to feel sorry for me because I took all this on myself. Yeah, if I had known, fine. But you know what? In, in, a, in an Italian family, the, the toughest position in an Italian family is the firstborn. Because they are the ones that are expected to carry through. Right. And they're expected to carry through the day they are born. Okay, And I discovered it's not just Italian, by the way. Um, you know what? Uh, there are several Asian cultures that behave that way as well. A lot of European cultures behave that way. But that was my, that was my destiny from the day I was born. So, you know, you know, you've heard the term fake it till you make it, right? I mean, I hate that term. I hate it so much. But it's true. It's true. That's what, that's what we end up doing. And as I said before, I just resigned myself to this is the way life is. Yeah. And, and I'm a little surprised, you know, severe depression you were, you had for 36 years and that's after getting a diagnosis yet. It didn't seem like until just a couple of years ago that any doctor recommended anything other than the one medication and up the dose. Exactly. That is a long time it's a really to be long taking time, one oh, type yeah. of medication and, yeah. and to not Very explore other options. But yeah, I, and I, th you know, and and the the re I, the reason for it was I was busy. I was running a big company, right? A fast growing company. I had three kids. I had um, I had a lot of responsibility. Were you and dealing I take, with absenteeism I, at all from your depression, missing days? Um, I would say I think I probably had three three episodes. One, two of them were a month each, and the other one was maybe a week, week and a half. 
And I just push through. You know, I, I think it's amazing what the human spirit will do. Three episodes. Uh, just, uh, how do you describe those episodes? What was going on? I just, che- I just checked out of work and spent a month in bed. You know, I'd go to my doctor and talk to them. I think a lot of the issues that I had was I placed far too much trust on the medical community. Right. Far too much trust. And, and it's not that they're all, all, they're not all bad. I don't want people, you know, I don't want people to think I'm generalizing here because there are some rock stars out there. There are no, there's no question about it. But, you know, here's, here, here's a, a statistic, not a statistic, this is fact. Uh, during the research of my book, because of uh, the, my sort of skirmishes with the uh, medical health community, I decided to do a little bit of research. So I researched the University of Texas Medical School and the University of Toronto Medical School. Uh, and both of them, um, University of Toronto is called Community Medicine. That's a general practitioner, family doctor. And the University of Texas, it's uh, family practice. So both schools had 32 courses that you took over the four years to get your degree. That doesn't include uh, clinical work. Now, in the University of Texas, out of the 32 courses, four dealt with mental illness. One was called psychiatry. And the uh, and then there was two others that were really sort of academic. But here's the rub. None of them were clinical. None. Right. They never saw a patient. Yeah, physical stuff for sure. University of Toronto was even worse. 10% of the courses were dealt with mental illness. And yet a family doctor can prescribe medication. My mother believed her family doctor for 10 years. As right. he was overdosing her, he was overdosing her actually with well, too much medication. Well, and and I think you also took some responsibility, saying you felt too busy, so you just stuck with it. Um, yeah. But I'm yeah. I'm surprised the doctor wouldn't try a different medication or do something if you were still, you know, you had the time to see the psychiatrist and get the refills and so forth. And oh no, the refills the refills were only with the family doctor. They weren't. Oh, I only saw that right, that original okay. psychiatrist once. Gotcha. That was it. Just once. And the rest of the time, you know what? I just kept I just kept taking the medication as it was prescribed. If I had a really bad if I had a really bad episode, yeah, I would go talk to them and, and right. typically they'd up the they'd up the dose. So tell us and, a, a little bit more about your major bouts. You made it sound like you couldn't get out of bed for a month. I mean, are you was you, were you literally in bed for a month? Yeah, I I would say I would say I spent a good you know, other than sleeping, which was fitful. Um, I would spend another eight hours in bed easily, just easily. rolling around, just rolling around. Yeah. And, and that was one of the reasons why two years ago I decided I'd had enough. I think that was one of the catalysts is I was spending a lot of time in bed, right. uh, because of the nature of my work. And I, you know what? I blew off customers because I just didn't feel like it. Right. Uh, I was working, I was consulting with both my, ch- two of my three kids and their businesses, um, I don't think I gave them what they should have. I think I let them down as well, right? Because I was retreating again, right? Yeah. And and, and the I think same I was isolation you did in, as a yeah. little kid. Absolutely, right. you know, there it was again. Uh, absolutely, that, and th- that's why um, the 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 situations that I had uh, that would trigger it. There was really there was really nothing impactful that triggered me checking out for a month or so. It was just I would wake up one morning and say, I've had enough. I can't do this anymore. I didn't know what to do. It, it's an incredibly helpless feeling 
mm-hmm. because you're you're stuck between a rock and a hard place because you don't want to admit what's the matter with you to anybody. My wife, kind, my ex-wife, had a notion, but she did not know how severe it was. Not near enough, because a good old Johnny could put on a smiley face in no time, in absolutely no time. And so, um, yeah, you just get to the point where you feel helpless and you don't have a clue of what to do. That's what it comes down to. Were you, you still don't... able to eat? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. E- eating, eating was never a problem for me. Uh, eating and overindulging, overdrinking, never a problem. Because look, at the end of the day, and I love food, by the way, and I love to cook. Uh, I think that cooking has been, for me, um, a release from what I deal with. Because it's a nice, you know, it's a nice focus activity. I cook everything from scratch. I rarely open a can or open a package. You know, I cook everything from scratch. God bless my mother. She, good Italian mother. She taught me how to do that. Right. Um, so yeah, I love. You know, when I when I was in my in my really bad days, you know, I could drink a whole bottle of red by myself without a problem. You know, and then maybe smoke a couple of joints afterwards to really feel great. But, you know, at the end of the day, those are the two worst things you can possibly do to yourself if you're struggling with depression, for God's sakes, because they're both antidepressants. Yeah, right? well, absolutely. I mean, that's <laughs> you know, a, you, get uh, that little, you get that little rush and that little buzz. But when they're over, it's worse than when you started. Yeah, absolutely. Right? I mean, that's what's described as self-medicating, right? Just hit the exactly. booze, hit the drugs. Absolutely. So how heavily were you, how heavily were you drinking and smoking weed? Uh, I would say, you know, uh, smoking weed, it, my, my recreational drug of choice was hashish because hash was easy right and so hash put me in just this beautiful wonderful you know nice feeling escape uh, oh it was a beautiful escape right. it really was because you know it's not real yeah. right it's not real alcohol i don't know that alcohol i don't know that i abused alcohol that much i think that you know if we had family get-togethers and you know and we would have a few and we'd always invite friends over and this and that um yeah, yeah, I usually drank. I usually drank red to excess. Red and, and vodka martinis. Those are my those are my two go-tos, right? Well, and I would say, John, I know you're Italian, but if you were drinking a full bottle of red wine at night that on your own, that might count as abusing a bit. I would say so. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. All right. And it's, you know what? It's easier when you're with amongst when you're amongst friends, right? Because oh, yeah. you usually have two or three bottles going. Right. So you just keep refilling. Who notices? Right. Right? My my uh, my ex-wife rarely rarely commented on me drinking too much okay. because it, first of all it wasn't consistent it wasn't every night but when I did I overindulged and that's that's classic depression isn't yeah. it over oh, absolutely right that's what it is and so and that's what would happen to me um, so now I hardly drink at all I drink very little as a matter of fact. Right. Uh, you know, I smoke a little weed, vape, which is lovely. I mean, it's nice now that things are a little bit easier. Um, Completely not, legal in your entire country, yeah, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> because, you know, at the end of the day, right or wrong, it's no different than having a glass of wine, to be quite honest. But that's right. probably conversation for another time. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you know what? I, you know, as you said, Al, you know, I look back at my life and I think to myself, how the hell am I still alive? To be right. quite honest. Because, I mean, I got... I I was suicidal probably three three times, three times, and uh, and I came really really close one day. And I can still I can still visualize 
driving into a bridge abutment. I was really close. It was sort of, and it's twisted, right? Because uh, suicidal suicidal feelings are, are really twisted because I thought to myself, you know, I'm such a pain in the ass to everybody. You know, I push my, you know, I'm always arguing with my dad because he's abusing my mother. And then, you know, I'm fighting with my wife because I work too much. And, you know, what? And my brother needs help and he's, you know, he's not paying any attention to me. And how great would life be for all of them if I wasn't around? You That's know, the rationalization, right? The yeah. twisted rationalization. I think, right? I think that is um, a very common thought process that I went through as well, where people who become suicidal truly, really believe that they are a burden to everybody yeah. and that everybody would truly be better off without them. And I've said that a few times on the show, and I think that's why there are plenty of people out there who say for a while, like, I would never do something like that because of my family and I love my family. Well, there you go. when you start feeling like, as if you're a huge burden on this family yeah. you love deeply, like... That that oh my goodness yeah and that is it is a, a twisted thought process it's messed up and that's kind of what depression does right I mean that's exactly what it does I Absolutely. think it really impacted my cognition as well as memory yeah. focus and so yes. forth and yes, and agree. and then the rumination right because mm -hmm. you know you're mm -hmm. a burden and then you start thinking about how much of a burden you are at work yeah. at home yeah. bad husband bad father bad boss. And ruminating over it, and you yeah, got it. You very, got very it. Very bad place. You know. So, you know. I, I read an interesting article a few weeks ago about Robin Williams, and um, you know, he Robin Williams is easily one of everybody's favorite guys, right? Absolutely. And he suffered. He suffered terribly. Absolutely terribly. What was interesting about this article was, and it's it was obscure, and I wish I had downloaded it and printed it. I didn't because it had such an impact on me because I sat here and thought about it forever was that his real persona was the actor in movies like Goodwill Hunting, Patch Adams, The Fisher King, and even to a certain extent, Jumanji, as silly as it was. And the fake Williams was the comic. And I can remember, I can remember um, critics calling Williams overdramatic in his acting roles. And and I think the reason that they say that was because everybody knew the comic. But I really empathized with that. I empathized with that sort of outer persona, which is really so different than you, who you actually are. And you put this on, you put this show on. And then the real you is this sort of much quieter person, much more thoughtful person. And it struck me when I read that article that, you know what, that makes sense. That makes sense to me that there's two completely different people because, um, you know, I don't know if you ever watched Williams when he was in his cocaine days and in his cocaine days, I think people watched him and they were worried about him. Like this guy's going to kill himself on stage because he was so manic. It was unbelievable. And it was a manic brilliance. It really was. I mean, the guy's a totally brilliant guy. And then the next day you go watch a movie that he's in and he's a completely different person. But I don't think that was acting. I think that's who he was. Right. Very interesting. He right. is a, was a brilliant man. And I think yeah. we're right about the five year anniversary of his death. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was just last week. I think they were interviewing his son who is, who leads a foundation now okay. on uh, mental illness, which is great. I mean, it's about time. Right. It's about Absolutely. 
So tell us, I know you recently published a book, correct? Yeah. So part of my therapy with my uh, with my psychiatrist was to journal. And I've never been a real journaler. I, I probably have a dozen journals that have two or three pages written in them. And then, you know what, then I get lost interest and stopped doing it. However, um, I started to do it and I started to download my life, so to speak. And in the process of doing it, um, I thought to myself, I have a message here. I have lived this life and the book is very raw. Um, and it was actually raw-er, um, but luckily I have a couple of editors, but my girlfriend and my daughter, who you know took a look at it and helped me to you know chill out a little bit, as my daughter would say. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, too much information, Dad. That's I think that's what she said. Anyways, um, so I wrote this book, and it's in, and it's the story of my life. It's the story of um, how. I lived my life and the different situations that I lived in my life and how my mental illness affected my decision-making process. So uh, the highlight or the, the, the big chunk of the book is the 20 years that I spent leading the Panicus group of companies from an organization where we were barely making a paycheck to an industry leader is what we were. And throughout that time, uh, there were many, many episodes of how I matured as a leader and also how I had to deal with my father. Um, I sincerely believe my father is, has bipolar disorder. He will never, ever go to a therapist because he is who he is. However, his brother was diagnosed with bipolar. And I think my grandmother had it as well. Uh, speculation, for sure. Um, but looking at the behavior... And knowing what I know now, um, it wouldn't, certainly wouldn't surprise me if that's, if that's what happened. So I spent a lot of my, my life affected by my father. And let's face it, probably a lot of guys deal with that. Um, but it's different when you're, when you're struggling with depression. And it's different when the other one could, be, could have some sort of mental illness as well. Because it's, it, it's a toxic soup and we had it for a long time. I then go into what I did to recover or to overcome. I call it overcoming, actually. Overcoming the depression, managing the depression. There's different ways of, because depression never goes away. You know, there's no cure. So, you know, if you've got it, you've got it. Uh, the best you can do is work hard to minimize it in order to live your life. Because there are still mornings where I wake up, this morning was a good example, I woke up feeling shitty. However, I now have a routine that helps me to overcome it. And by the time I'm finished, and, and simply, I, I do a lot of meditation. Meditation's a huge part of my life. And, um, you know, I'm, I was able to meditate. So I tell the story of those type and a bunch of different therapies that I learned along the way. And then I also talk about a relapse um, where last year I thought I had beat it. I deluded myself to believe I didn't need my medication any longer and quit cold turkey. And then managed to have the worst month and a half of my life as a result of it. First time in 37 years without medication. And it taught me a, it taught me a very, very important lesson that you don't do that. <laughs> you know, you talk, if you're going to do it, if you want to lower your dose or whatever, you need to do it with a professional. Absolutely, helping. without a doubt. So, yeah, so Dr. Stein tore me a new one when he found out. <laughs> uh, I, I, listen, I was in the parking lot of the drugstore 
calling him to say, please, I need this refill. Why do you need the refill? And I told him, he goes, oh, my goodness, are you kidding me? What, are you a lunatic? <laughs> I said, yes, I am. I was. I was a lunatic. I, You know, I learned my lesson. Okay, okay, okay. It's one Luckily, of those uh, natural consequences, right? <laughs> absolutely it is. You know what? And we're guys, right? And we're supposed to be so strong and so tough. Well, bullshit. Yeah. Excuse my line. Sorry, I'm not, <laughs> no problem. not sure if that's appropriate. Not a problem. But, um, so I talk about the relapse because it doesn't go away. It just doesn't. You know, you need to be able to understand. Look, if you um, – and as a result of all that, I, I I built my workshop. And my workshop is – do I have, we have a couple minutes we can talk about the workshop? Yeah, I would love to talk about the workshop. But can you – before we move yeah. on, I don't think uh, sure. you mentioned. Can you share with us the title um, yes. of oh, the book and where people can find it? Yes. Uh, crazy. Who, me? Uh, my journey as a leader overcoming depression. Excellent, uh, and it's available at, on Amazon. Great, and it's available in hardback. Uh, sorry, hardcover, softcover, and ebook, and very shortly will be available as an audiobook. Awesome! I will definitely make sure there's a link to that in the show notes. And yeah, uh, I know you do have a workshop, so please yeah. share that with uh, us. Yeah, and and what's interesting is the workshop is a result of my recovery. And overcoming, and, and 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 what I did was I I, I backtracked and, and followed the progression of how I got to where I am now. So it's called Restore, and Restore, each one of the letters is an acronym for um, a topic that I talk about. So the R is realization, is being able to realize what you're dealing with. The E is education. Once you've realized that you have an issue, then educate yourself. Uh, the S is sharing, is you need to be able to share how you feel with somebody. doesn't matter who. Uh, the T is test drive. And what I mean by test drive is look for therapists. Do not rely on the, the medical health community. Yes, they can help you, but this is your life. So you need to do it yourself. Part of test drive is also different types of therapies. And I spend, a, I spend a quite a bit of time on hypnosis as well well during test drive um, after test drive comes opting in and opting in is is probably the most critical part and that is that you've got to do something about this you cannot live your life like I did and accept that you're going to take some medication and this is the way it's going to go uh, leaders have drive determination and grit to get stuff done they also care a lot about the people that work with them they care about their customers they care about their families they tend not to care about themselves so opting in is so critical that you've got to say to yourself, okay, this is about me now. This is the only way I'm going to get better. This has got to be about me. And then comes R, which is routine. And anybody that is dealing with some sort of mental illness and wants to get better needs to develop a routine, a routine that guides their lives. And the routine has components such as meditation, exercise, nutrition, mindfulness, um, replenishment. And so I've, I've got a, a, a bunch of different things that I do, and I actually describe my routine as well, what I do on a daily basis. And then finally, the E is evaluate, because you need to constantly evaluate how you're feeling because of what I call depression creep. As good as you feel, if you don't do a daily inventory of those things that can really put you back to where you were, uh, you're going to get there. You will go back. Uh, this is an insidious disease. It really is. I sincerely believe it's worse than cancer. 
because if you're not careful, it's always going to come back. And that's why I did the workshop because I want um, I want to be able to share it with with leaders and even people that are not leaders, um, so they can get better. And it's it's very interactive. There's uh, there's a lot of video involved. There's a lot of audience participation and so on. Um, the the workshop has not been is not been released public yet. It will be a webinar in time. I'm doing several presentations to different business groups to test drive it to make sure that you know I've got it right. I think the the webinar will probably be the most impactful because let's face it, we still are dealing with that stigma of weakness. We don't want people to know. So I thought, okay, the webinar is a good idea because you don't really have to <laughs> share it with anybody. You can watch it yourself on your screen, and you know, hopefully, at the end of the day, you've learned something. So, um, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, and I also coach. Um, I'm also coaching leaders that are dealing with mental illness. It's a different type of coaching. It's not. It's not about the bottom line. It's not just about your people. It's about you. And if your mental health is not healthy. Your company's not going to be healthy, yeah. you know, because I, you know, from, from my perspective, if I was mentally healthy when I was running my business, our business, I likely would still be there and it would probably be three or four times the size it was, but I held it back because of, because of me, because of the fear and stuff like that. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I'm, I'm not hoping, I expect that I will be able to you know, help leaders to see, you know, you don't have to live this terrible life. You really don't. You know, there is a way out. There is a way to manage this. Um, so we'll see how it goes. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I think there is definitely a niche and a need for it, particularly with business leaders, CEOs, executive directors and such. And yep. I think many of them, while they are leading, are fearful of acknowledging admitting that they have a mental illness and the more leaders uh, that we get out there sharing their stories and explaining what's going on and how they were able to get through like you are doing the better for the whole community I mean, well and, and th th there's also there's also another extremely important thing here and that is the millennial generation is not afraid to talk about this right okay um, we, we raised them. I have three millennials, by the way, so I know very well about this. Um, we have raised them not to be afraid. And I'm telling you right now, good mental health initiatives and benefits within a company are going to be the retention strategies that are going to help companies be successful Absolutely. in the future. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's not about gym memberships anymore. It's not. It really isn't. The physical stuff, the physical benefits and whatnot, that's easy peasy. It really is. The mental health benefits, that's where the challenges are. And that's where companies need to start facing. So if you can have a leader that actually comes out and says, listen, I'm struggling. And as a result, he works towards changing his culture. He's going to be a winner. Absolutely. At the end of the day, he's going to his and, – and more importantly, his people are going to be the winners it, as well. It, it changes the entire culture of the organization Absolutely. by having a leader share. Yeah, and because, you know, at the end of the day, what it does is it creates an enormous amount of trust, which is sorely lacking in organizations. Yeah. Everybody's looking over their shoulders, right, because they're just so afraid. Uh, but it creates an incredible amount of trust. And, you know, we need to get, you know, we need to be 
genuinely happy, I think, yeah. at the end of the day. That's what we should be looking for. Absolutely. So I know you said your book is on Amazon. How can people reach out to you, get in touch with you, uh, and Absolutely. book you for your um, workshop? Yeah. Um, my website, which is johnpanagas.com, J-O-H-N, P-A-N-I-G-A-S dot com. Uh, there will be a calendar on there shortly um, as to when I'm going to be running the first few workshops um, as well. Um, I, I pretty well have the content done for the uh, for the webinar. Um, <laughs> I'm 61 years old, so I need to figure out the technology. That's taken me <laughs> a little bit of time. <laughs> That's great. You'll get there. Right. I'm sure I will. I look at look at look at you and I having this this interview over Skype. I love this. Absolutely. Type of stuff. <laughs> so so johnpanagus dot com, and I'll have that in the show notes as well. And uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you what type of advice would you have? I know you've gave plenty throughout, but what piece of advice would you give to a listener now who may be struggling, particularly if it is a leader who's scared to share with anybody that they're struggling? Find a therapist. Seriously, that's what it is. Find a therapist. Vet that therapist because you can do it. There are half a dozen really good websites where you can, you know, you can type in the, where, the area you're in, you're looking for a psychiatrist or a psychologist. It'll bring them all up. It gives you a rating on each one of them from one to five. This is amazing. When I found this, I found this out. I couldn't believe it. What's more important, though, is that read the reviews. because Just because somebody is a 3.5 doesn't mean they're not a good therapist. It's important to read the reviews and see if any of those reviewers are who you are. Because if, if, if they're telling the similar stories to you and they're successful, then that's somebody you may want to consider seeing. Yeah, great that advice. Would be, that, would, that would be my advice. Because I, because I, I, you know, and, and then when you go see that, that therapist, do not believe, do not put them on a pedestal. Ask them questions. Don't be afraid to say, what's your methodology? What do you think about medication? You know, what type of frequency do I need to come and see you for? And when they give you the answers, challenge them. Don't be afraid to challenge these people because you don't want to end up being the type of person that saves all their problems for their therapy session. You want to be the type of person that has been taught how to deal with your problems yeah. at your therapy session. That's, that's great advice. And I would just add too that if you, I like to give a therapist maybe two or three opportunities, and if you aren't clicking and you're still having doubts, then then bolt and find Absolutely. another. It is worth the time and effort to shop around when it comes to a therapist because you really it's your need, life. Yeah, and you really need to connect with them. You really need to trust yep. them. I yes. and the reason I say give them an opportunity two or three times is because sometimes. You get a bad impression the first time or it's off and you're depressed yourself. I know yes. for me, I yes. was a little turned off by a guy that I ended up loving. And really, yeah. it was my own paranoia of why is he asking this question, you know, and oh, my gosh. And um, so give them an opportunity. But I love what you said, too, is ask them questions. I think that first session should be you interviewing them as much as I'm interviewing you. You know what? You hit it right on the head. That's yeah. the way it should be. And do yourselves a favor. Write these questions down. Yeah. And it's it, listen. It's not difficult anymore. Go on Google and say what questions should I ask my therapist? Yeah. And you're gonna you're gonna get ten thousand 
files there that you can that you can look at and you know write the questions down that resonate with you and ask those questions yeah. and if you see them squirm uh, you know what beware beware yeah. yep yeah. awesome right. excellent uh, well, John, I want to thank you uh, for all your time and thank you for the work you're doing to support those with mental illness. Thanks for putting your book out into the world, your workshop, and uh, thank you for your time on the show. Right, listen, Al, this has been a wonderful experience. Thank you very much for having me on. All right. Great to chat. Uh, make sure you stay healthy. You too. Bye now. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.